have Sharon actually presenting on ART in women and pregnancy, MCs, comorbid conditions, and other current issues. She's a professor of pediatrics and associate dean for research at SUNY Stony Brook um, in Stony Brook. Sharon? Okay. Just a quick shout out to the pediatricians and obstetricians in the room. Thank you for coming. I have no conflict of interest, no disclosures. The objectives for today's study are to describe the data on antiretroviral use when used during pregnancy, think about dosing, toxicity, and efficacy, monitor DTG use during pregnancy, why we are talking about it, what's this whole thing with neural tube defects, and then really think about what are the other issues, and most importantly, what does the community want? Well, first we're gonna talk about the data on antiretroviral use in pregnancy. There are no pre-licensure studies for antiretrovirals ever. Of the 32 approved antiretrovirals, the mean lag between approval and data in pregnancy is, best case scenario, six years. That's from the time it's licensed till we actually have a first hint of data. You're using them without any data. What do we need to know? We need to know dosing by trimester, dosing at delivery, washout in babies, lactation, the list goes on and I only have 30 minutes. Most importantly, we have to understand that women metabolize antiretrovirals different than men, so the playing ground was actually never really equal. So looking at the drugs that have been approved by the FDA from 1987 to 2018, there are 32 single antiretrovirals that have been approved, 22 fixed dose combinations approved for adults during that time. We've done really great. How about in children? Of 25 of the 32 ARVs that were approved in adults are now approved in children. Eight had simultaneous approval in adults and children. 17 had significant delay. The mean delay from adults to approval in children was about 3.8 years with some as long as nine years. Oh, that's not really very good. Let's move on to pregnant women. Well, the time between approval and the first published data, and notice I did not say approval, is now six years. So that means there's a gap from adults to children and there's this chasm from children to pregnant women. What about label approval in pregnancy? There is only one drug that has label approval for pregnancy and that's ZDV. That's it. It's the only one that's ever been licensed for use in pregnancy. Pregnant women are excluded from ARV drug development programs. There's no pregnancy data when the initial label comes out. It says, quote, use during pregnancy only if the potential benefit justifies the potential risk. That means it's on you when you use these drugs. Complera, for example, changed in 2018 to list monitor viral load closely during pregnancy as requirement exposures were generally lower during pregnancy. Does that tell you anything? Actually, nothing at all. So what do we really know about dosing antiretrovirals? Let's start with NRTIs. For Bacavir, Amtricitabine, and Lamuvidine, TAF, and TDF, no, no change in the dose. For TDF, it says the AUC is lower in the third trimester than postpartum, but trough levels are adequate. I'm not so sure you're very excited to hear something is adequate. We don't like to describe drugs that way. Zidovidine, good joke, good information, there's no change in the dose. What about NNRTIs? Well, we have a smorgasbord of stuff here which say no dosage adjustments 
with two drugs that have a big insufficient data. That means we know absolutely nothing about how to use those drugs during pregnancy. So it's really important to remember that two drug regimens are not recommended during pregnancy. You might use them in adults, but you can't use them when the woman is pregnant. What about protease inhibitors? Well, we've got a little bit of data on some of these drugs. For adizanivir, we talk about ritonavir enhanced. Adizanivir should be used. Anything that has COBE in its title should not be used because COBE is subtherapeutic when you're pregnant. So if someone has a COBE-containing regimen before they're pregnant and they get pregnant, you must switch them off that COBE-containing regimen. Darunavir, we've got some information, but we can only use it twice daily, not once daily. Fosamprenavir should be not really used during pregnancy a whole lot. What about it? integrase inhibitors? For raltegravir, no dosage adjustments are required. For cobistat, I've already told you, please don't use it during pregnancy. The PKs are subtherapeutic. Ficetavir, well, we have no data. Dalyatigravir, no dosage adjustments. More on that later, though. What about other ARVs? The use of anything COBE, it doesn't matter what it's in combination with, is not recommended. What about Maravaroc? Well, we've got some kind of wishy-washy stuff saying PK study in pregnancy demonstrated a 20 to 30% overall decrease, but the C-trough exceeded the recommended minimum concentration. So that means if somebody is somewhat adherent, but not completely adherent, you're going to have subtherapeutic PKs during pregnancy, and they are at risk for infection. In fervitide, insufficient data, no one's really using that. This is a copy of the um, guidelines for antiretroviral drugs in pregnant women with HIV infection and interventions to reduce perinatal transmission. And this was, of course, downloaded recently, and anyone can get this. Our recommendation, if you are seeing women who are thinking about getting pregnant, this should be something you post on your wall so everyone in the office can see. So really, what happens during pregnancy? Well, pregnant women experience a lot of changes in their body. Yes, they're feeling sick. Yes, they're throwing up. But they also have other physiologic changes. There's increased GI transit time. That will alter the rate of drug absorption. They have decreased albumin and increased alpha-1 acid glycoprotein concentrations. That changes protein binding. They have increased cardiac output, increased concentrations of glucocorticoids, everything that regulates drug metabolism. So it's not that they're just gaining weight. Everything in them changes as well. Everyone's laughing, going, yes, we, we remember that weight gain. So how do we find out about toxicity and teratogenicity effects in women and children? Well, first, there are preclinical studies. These are animal studies. And typically, according to the FDA now, you need two sets of animal data to get FDA approval. What's the problem? The not all animal models mimic human pregnancy models. So for example, the data on thalidomide, valproate, and DS was only noted in pregnant women when they had the drug. The animal models didn't show any toxicity compared to what we see in the female, in the pregnant woman. Even when a toxicity is noted in an animal model, that doesn't predict an outcome in the human model. Efavirenz has CNS toxicity in monkeys. We worried about it. It has no toxicity in pregnant women. So a negative animal tox is somewhat reassuring, but gaps exist, and stuff always comes around to surprise us. So the questions we need to ask ourselves, it's not just which antiretroviral and what dose, what's the PK, but we also have to ask ourselves, what's a toxicity? Is there synergistic toxicity? 
And most importantly, are there uncommon toxicity events? Do you have to study enough women to see that outcome and think about changing practice? It's like the commercials we see on television. This drug, if given, will cause everything, including a car accident. <laughs> so let's think about these toxicities now for a few minutes. There are toxicities to the mom, and toxicities to the fetus, and toxicities sort of to the pregnancy. Toxicities to the mom, we include hematologic and chemistry abnormalities, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, maybe some other stuff. And to the baby, we worry about preterm or premature delivery, remembering that one in nine babies born in the US today is now preterm. So the background is quite a large number. Is the drugs we're giving to the mom additive to that, or are we just seeing the background noise? We've heard a lot about other studies that have to include placebos. This is the same kind of thing we worry about. So PROMISE is a study that was done by the Impact Network, looking at international as well as domestic sites with three treatment arms. And it was an idea to study toxicities to the mommy, preterm and premature deliveries, toxicities to the baby, as well as outcomes. And this data showed nicely that no matter what we give you, there is a side effect. Whatever arm you pick, you're going to take the hit on there's going to be some toxicity associated with that side effect. The take home message is, be careful what you choose, think about the toxicities, and then look for them. There's nothing that we give that doesn't have a side effect. But more importantly, when you compare all HIV infected women across all toxicities and all outcomes, they always have more than HIV uninfected women. So it's not the drug issue per se that's probably cumulative, it's the fact that they're HIV infected and the drug that's associated with our bad outcomes or toxicities that we see. So in this nice paper by Rebecca Zass and company in JAMA Pediatrics in 2017, when she looked at HIV infected versus HIV uninfected, independent of the drug that they took across all comers, the HIV uninfected women always did better. So however, when you started drugs during pregnancy, she found no difference from the pregnancy outcomes for efavivans and docetegravir. This suggests that some drugs may be better than other drugs when you start them during your pregnancy. But compared to the uninfected, they will always do worse. So now that brought up an interesting problem. So what should we be doing? And looking at some of the current guidelines, you'll notice that it says dalutegravir should not be initiated during the first trimester at less than 14 weeks. And the answer is what changed over the past year and a half to two years that dalutegravir went from we should be using it to no, we shouldn't be using it or think about when you're using it and who you're using it in. And that brings up the question of what happened. So let's think back for a few minutes and say, what happens when we give a drug during gestation? Every trimester during gestation has its own hit. If you gave a drug in the very first few weeks of gestation, you may have problems, central nervous system, as well as heart problems. If you gave a drug during the second trimester, you'll have other issues like genitalia issues. And if you gave a drug at the time of delivery or an infection at the time of delivery, there'll be some other problem. There's no part of gestation that's free from toxicities of occurrences that are happening to the fetus. For example, in the first trimester, toxo-infections are severe. They are subclinical in the third trimester. Rubella in the first trimester gives you the triad for congenital rubella. If it occurs at the end of the third trimester, we don't see any of these events. 
at week 20 of gestation, we see smoking and intrauterine growth retardation. Week 24 gestation, we see alcohol use and fetal alcohol syndrome. And in the third trimester, if you have herpes, that's a horrible outcome compared to seeing it in the first trimester. So no, no matter what trimester you're talking about, there's a toxicity that we have to worry about. So what are the events that happen with neural tube defects? And this discussion all started because of some data that came out of the Botswana study. And we'll first talk about what are neural tube defects. Neural tube defects are a spectrum of maldevelopment affecting the neural tube. It's associated meninges and the axial uh, skeleton. Depending on the time of onset, you will get different regions of the neural tube and non-neural organs involved in the syndrome. There are two types, an open type and a closed type. And what's really interesting is depending what you're looking at, we don't know which event will occur. This neural tube defect stuff is multifactorial. Because it's a multi-step process and it's strictly controlled by multiple genes, a hit on a different gene will give you a different outcome. The etiology is very poorly understood, and it's generally thought that these neural tube defects are multifactorial. There's genetic issues and there's environmental issues. So, taking a quick look over here, you can see all the different types of neural tube defects, but what's interesting of all the cases, one-third of them are on the higher up of the brain, and two-thirds of them are on the lower part, on the spinal column. So if they are really associated with the same genetic events, it should be as even as a coin toss, you see a 50-50% predominance. But in fact, because it's one-third and two-third, we hypothesize there are different genes and different hits to these systems that causes a different outcome. And these are some pictures on the bottom of these neural tube defects, low events being spinal bifida, higher up events being anencephaly and encephaloceles. So the incidence of meningomyelocele, or a lower event, is one case in 1,200 to 1,400 live births. These neural tube defects are the most common birth defect globally, but interestingly, they have a marked geographic variation. A study of long-term neural tube defects in Europe found the pool total prevalence was about 9.1 per 10,000. But if you look, in China, the event rate is 3.7 per 1,000. So depending on where you are, you will see different neural tube defect rates, but they should all be about the same, telling you there's a really big genetic link to this illness. Well, what about other genetic factors we worry about? There's a slight female predominance. There's a higher incidence in certain ethnic groups. There's some chromosome abnormalities that are associated with neural tube defect, like trisomy 13, 18, and 21. And there's concordance between monozygotic twins and higher than dizygotic twins. So there's a whole smorgasbord of genetic links that we really don't understand why they happen. But if you think that's bad, remember there's also environmental links to this illness. Some of these include geographic location, the season of conception, socioeconomic class, maternal diabetes, maternal age, folate deficiencies, maternal alcohol, you name it, it should probably be on this list as well. More of these are born in the summer, in this associated with spring conceptions than they are, and more of them associated with some temperature instability in the fetus as well. So it's not just the genetics that hit neural tube defect, there's also environmental stuff, again, stuff that we poorly understand. So folate was, of course, 
brought out as the panacea that's going to fix all neural tube defects. The recommended intake of folate is 0.4 milligrams per deciliter. However, if you've had a prior baby with a neural tube defect, you in fact have to take four milligrams per deciliter of folate to prevent the next baby from having a neural tube defect. And even amongst those that do that, they still have another risk of a neural tube defect totally not related to folate. What's the take home message? It's really not all about the folate either. There are other nutrients that have been thought to be linked to folate metabolism, maybe vitamin C, riboflavin, you name it, there's an animal model that will help you prove it. Research gaps still exist because we don't know why these defects occur. We don't know why there's a genetic predisposition, a number a seasonal predisposition, all of that stuff is sort of still up in the air. And if it's not just folate, there's other things we worry about, like autoantibodies. There's a nice animal model that shows that autoantibodies to the folate receptors will also be seen in some of the babies with neural tube defect. There are mouse models that show that it's thymidine biosynthesis, methylation, you name it, vitamin B12, choline, everything can be associated with these neural tube defects. So now let's get back to the data and see what Rebecca Zass and her colleagues in the Botswana study showed. The birth outcome surveillance was at eight government hospitals. As of May 2018, a total of 89,000 births had been included in surveillance. And they looked at all the women who were HIV infected, women who were not infected, what medication these women were. And among the 426 infants born to HIV positive moms who had been taking dolutegravir preconceptually, not that they were identified as infected and started it afterwards, but they were identified as HIV positive and started the dolutegravir and then got pregnant. Amongst that small cohort of women, four of the 426 women had a baby that had a neural tube defect. These four mothers delivered in three geographically separated hospitals over a six month period. None of these mothers had diabetes, none of them had epilepsy, there was no consanguinity to any of them, they had never had a prior baby with a neural tube defect. These were four different lightning strikes. In Botswana, nobody gets folate at uh, supplementation during pregnancy, so the rate of uh, neural tube defects should have been no different amongst all the women that were followed in the Botswana study. But in fact, neural tube defects occurred only in 0.12 of 11,000 infants born during any other time during the study. So they really didn't see if it was a folate deficiency, we should have seen the same rate happening at all of the babies that were born in the study, but in fact, it was logarithmically different amongst those moms who had gotten the dolutegravir periconceptionally. And this is a picture from her New England Journal paper looking at the dolutegravir given during preconception, after conception, during pregnancy, and the HIV negatives in of course, you can see the difference on those numbers. There were seven additional infants with other neural tube defects in the full cohort. Three were born to women who started on non-dolutegravir ARVs during pregnancy, three born to HIV-infected women who didn't receive any antiretroviral, and one to a woman whose HIV status was also not known. And when they looked at the other non-DTG ARVs, there was a smorgasbord of meds that were used. It's hard to pin it on any other med as well. 
Among the women who started DTG during pregnancy, the median age of starting them was 19 <coughs> weeks. There were no neural tube defects seen. So what about other countrywide data? When you get a result from one country, you have to ask yourself, is this true? Is it a statistical event? Is it not true? What else is happening? So this is data from several other cohorts that were also looked at. From Uganda, Felipe Masoki looked at uh, 43,000 births, and the prevalence was the same background noise that we see in Europe and other groups. There were other groups that were studied also in Africa. The median prevalence was the same as the background numbers. No one else was seeing the signal pretty much at the same time. So now if you go and do the math, and I assume there's some statisticians or wannabe statisticians in the audience, you have to ask yourself, was this sample size the real problem? This study, the Botswana study, looking at those women, in fact, was not supposed to be looked at as early as it was. It was sort of an anecdotal, WHO said, could you just kind of tell us how those women were doing? And that's when they found those four neural tube defects. The study really was planned to be looked at next month or the month after that to actually break the code and see how many neural tube, how many, what was the outcome of all the women that were on study. So in fact, it was an unplanned evaluation. And in the statistical world, anytime you put your toe into the unplanned evaluation, you always get surprised. So we have to be very cautious when we look at this data and say, is it true? Or because it was an unplanned evaluation, your sample size was really not by accident, by chance alone, you found something that really wasn't there. So this is a slide that I got from our colleagues at Vive, and we've had a lot of dialogue about should we believe it, not believe it, and stuff. And they had their statisticians sort of look at the estimations of neural tube frequencies, as well as the 95% confidence interval by month with varying number of defects and varying upper limits of how many women you started. And you can see very easily looking at the orange dot of the non-DTG ARV neural tube defect rate and how many patients you would have to study and the error bars around that before you say they overlap. So in fact, if the study had in fact not had the unplanned evaluation, but waited until they looked at the number they said they would look at, and even if they had five neural tube defect, if you looked at a sample size of 1,200, uh, 1,230 patients, you would see no difference on the background numbers. So you have to be very cautious when you look at an unplanned evaluation and decide are you going to change what you're doing, not change it, and why? Because everything we do has implications for the women who are taking these medications. We really have to think, do we want to make them a second-class citizen by not giving them the best antiretrovirals that we can? So where do we go from here? Well, we wait. Many groups are looking at their data sets. The ability to rule out an increase in a rare birth defect with an incidence of 0.1% would need about 2,000 exposures to prove relatedness. What was the sample that I told you from the Botswana study? 426. That's not the right number that we need for the sample size. More moms are delivering at these eight sites. There's no additional neural tube defects in July, as of July of 2018, and I don't have more data from that point because of kind of being mom waiting for the real evaluation. We need to add more sites, we need to look at other medications, and we need to follow all of the other births in Botswana and think about other possibilities. This is from the WHO guidelines that suggest how are you going to treat HIV-infected women who are pregnant. 
So women of childbearing potential, first line is two NRTs plus dalutigravir if they agree to go on contraceptives. But if they agree not to go on contraceptives, they don't want it, they want to get pregnant, you're supposed to give them two NRTIs plus the favorins. The second line is two NRTIs plus adizanivir, lopinavir, and third line are some other choices. And for children, and the reason I've included in this is because children means 13 and above in WHO land, and oftentimes they're getting pregnant too. So the same kind of rules apply. If you think they're high risk for pregnancy, you have to either start them on contraceptives or start them on something else that many of us in the room might consider not the best first line treatment for them. What about other countries with high efavirenz resistance? Just saying I'm not gonna give you dalutigravir, I'm gonna give you efavirenz is also not a great choice because there are a lot of countries that have pretreatment resistance to efavirenz or dimverapine at rates of about 10% or higher. And we need to think, do we wanna give them a second line choice that they're already gonna be resistant to and therefore they're going to have an HIV infected infant and they'll be subtherapeutic dosed as well. We need to think about dalutigravir choices consistent with reliable contraception and many of our international sites don't link the HIV providers with people that are going to be giving them contraceptive. The more places you send a woman to to get her medication, the less likely she's going to get all the medications you would like her to get. What about passive reporting of adverse events? There is something called the antiretroviral pregnancy registry and I put the link here and this data is available. You can go online and just type it in, you'll get it. They have great case report forms and they tell you how to report events. What's the problem? This is a passive reporting system. So if you have an outcome, you put it in. But for those of us that have had hundreds of pregnancies in our clinics and no outcomes, how many times have we filled it out? None. So the numbers on this registry are unfortunately quite small. There's a telephone you can call if you have an adverse event. You can fax stuff, you can email them, and the case report form is relatively easy, but it does take time if you don't know what it is. Have we seen any other neural tube defects in other registries? Well, there are a registry in France that was a prospective registry looking at reltegravir, and they have not seen any neural tube defects in that registry either. Neural tube defects have not been observed among the 688 periconceptional other IST observations reported to date. We've seen women on dalutegravir, elvitegravir, reltegravir, and None of those women have had, have had neural tube defects in those infants either. We also want to look at what's the background number of neural tube defects in country. And this is a summary of birth defects that among the first trimester exposures through July of 2018. And the two lines that I have drawn there in the blue on the far right are the Metropolitan Atlanta Birth Registry and the Texas Birth Registry. You don't have to be a statistician to see that these all overlap. So there's no other reported data that any of these defects are occurring more in one drug compared to another drug compared to our background numbers of registries. And again, the best part about these registries for the Texas registry and the Atlanta registry is the thousands and thousands of babies that they cover. Because if you find one defect, you're not sure what it is. When you have thousands, you know that it's just background noise. I represent the International um, Maternal Pediatric Adolescent Network. It's the maternal child HIV network funded by NIH. And what is our network doing to help solve some of these questions? Well, the first is we've got several studies that look at PKs 
during antiretroviral use during pregnancy. And this study called 1026 has already studied over 25 antiretrovirals. Over 1,000 pregnant women have enrolled on it. And we have been pretty much the primary citation for all of the data that you see in licensed products at the FDA. Looking ahead, we are doing a next study because new ARVs are always coming down the pipe. And we will be looking at Duravirine, Bicetavir, TAF, you name it, Cabotegravir, other ARVs, et cetera, because any time this drug is licensed, somebody's gonna use it, somebody's gonna get pregnant on it, and we won't know what the right answer to the question is. So we are looking to enroll all those women, both domestically and internationally, to get the PKs, get the baby washout data, and follow the babies to look for toxicity in the mom, PKs in the mom, toxicity in the infant, and washout, and see how those babies do. And we follow the moms and the babies for 48 weeks. But the most important question that we really haven't talked about to date is what does the community want? I was fortunate this past summer to be in Amsterdam during IAS when the whole Dalyotegravir, do we use it, not use it, neural tube defect stuff occurred. And this was a meeting that the Dalyotegravir data was being presented in a very large auditorium similar to this. The meeting was interrupted because of the women's groups that protested during the meeting, took over the room, took over the stage, and basically said, you didn't ask us what we want. We understand the risks of the neural tube defect. We understand that you don't know enough about when it occurs, who it occurs, why it occurs. But we do understand that we don't want to be second-class citizens. We don't want to have drugs that are less therapeutic than our partners are getting because, in fact, we need to be treated just as well as they did. And you can't see the signs very well, but it says Dalyotegravir now because the women's group basically said, and this was multi, wasn't a single group, it was multicultural, multi-country, you name the country they were represented, all saying the same thing. We want to be able to be part of the decision-making for this medication. So that's all I have for today, and thank you for listening. Questions? Those are the pediatricians leaving. Do we have some questions from the audience? They're going to discuss to look at it in March, April. So that means by this, either before the summer or this summer, we'll see. Yeah, one would hope. Question. Yes, there is a question on the side. Go for it. So the question. Hang on, can I go back on the slides? So the question was, if you're using efavirenz instead of dalyotegravir, you have to be careful as to what location or what country those patients are from. And actually, WHO has a lovely map by country that looks at resistance numbers. So when you see a new patient coming to your office and 
even if you're in New York, but they kind of just got off the plane from Uganda, the first thing I would do is look what country they're from and what the resistance profile is, because that will help me. Yes, you could send a viral load now, but you really kind of want to know where they're from, where their partner's from, because that will make a big difference. Okay, thank you, Sharon. So everybody is clear now. And